Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network. And as you may know, the network is run by volunteers. There are about a 100 of us, but we do have expenses. So we'd like to ask you to contribute a little something if you can. If you enjoy the programming we produce, then we hope that you will take a moment to go to any New Books Network page and hit the button that says Donate to NBN. And whether you contribute or not, we'd like to thank you for listening to the network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network and also the host of New Books in History. Today, I am happy to say we have Timothy Schenk on the show, but I'll be calling him Tim, as he requested. <laughs> and he's written a wonderful book about somebody that I, I read when I was an undergraduate, Maurice Dobb, and the name of the book is Maurice Dobb, Political Economist. As I say, a long time ago when there were Marxists, there may still be Marxists, I think, <laughs> uh, but there were a lot of them back in the 80s when I first started to read this stuff. Uh, Dobb was essential reading. For me, it was a great treat to kind of bring the brilliance, which is Maurice Dobb, back to my mind and also remember an age in which uh, we thought of things in a little broader way than we do today. Mm-hmm. I guess I would put it that way. So, Tim, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Marshall. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. My pleasure. Could you kick things off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm a graduate student in history at Columbia right now. I'm working on a dissertation focusing on U.S. local economy in the 20th century, but I've had this job project sort of going as like a side endeavor for a few years now. Started working on it in uh, September 2008, about. And so it's great to see it finally out and like letting other people in the world be able to see what I've been working on furtively uh, for so many years. Yeah. I was going to say it's unusual for a graduate student to write a book like this before the dissertation, but uh, it's, it's actually the first time I've ever heard of it. <laughs> How and why did you do this? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, um, it was a sort of a, it, the reason why it doesn't happen is because it takes a lot of very lucky factors, like coinciding to make it like even possible. And so I was just, it was just a series of, yeah, coincidental, but like good opportunities. Basically, the story is that um, I graduated from Columbia in 2007 in the summer. Sorry, in the, yeah, May 2007. And I had a fellowship that paid for me to go to Cambridge for two years. My first year, I did an MPhil. I wrote a, a thesis on Marx. And then my second year, like the MPhil was done, and I had funding, but nothing to do. And while I had been in Cambridge, sort of like right away, I was um, reading Eric Hausbaum's memoir. And Dobb had been someone who I was aware of generally. And Hausbaum, in his memoir, uh, Interesting Times, just like have to mention that he had applied to Cambridge partly to work with Dobb and that Trinity College, which was uh, Dobb's College of Cambridge, was uh, Hobson's second choice because he wanted to just, like make sure that he could be like as close to Dobb as possible. Mm-hmm. So in reading this and just like, walking around Cambridge, it struck me like that was, I mean, this is interesting, Hobson, obviously, one of the greatest historians of the 20th century, Dobb, someone who I was like aware of as having written like a big book about capitalism that I had skimmed at one point in my undergrad, when I was an undergrad, writing every sheet paper. So I, like, went home, like, checked out the, like, did some Googling, found out that the only two people who had written anything serious on Dobb were Eric Hosbaum, 
who had worked on the, who had written the Oxford, like, Dictionary National Biography, that entry, and Amartya Sen, who I discovered was also a Dow student mm-hmm. and had written a short essay on him. And there are a couple other pieces, but those were, like, the big, like, biographical entries. Mm-hmm. Then I did a little bit more research, discovered that Dow's papers were all about two blocks away from my apartment. <laughs> and, that yeah, is a coincidence. for me, yeah. I was in the middle then of writing this, uh, my master's dissertation was on Marx's journalism in mm-hmm. the 1850s. He was, it turned out that basically he and Engels were the foreign correspondents for the New York Herald Tribune, mm-hmm. which at the time was one of the most like popular papers in the United States. And I had been really enjoying sort of piggybacking on their writing to get like a broader history of the 19th century. And I thought that with Dobb, I'd be able to sort of do the same thing for the 20th century, mm-hmm. that he would be my entry into these debates. There's a lot of them focused on political economy, but really some of the most, like, for me, like, compelling issues of the 20th century that, and maybe this is just sort of like a nascent historian's instinct, that I wanted to go into these subjects, but I thought it would be great to do it from a particular vantage point, just to give me a slightly different entry into them. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. Like, over the summer of that year, so the summer before my second year in Cambridge, I, like, read all those books in the fall and winter I went through his papers. Then in the spring, I wrote up a really, really, really bad draft, like a very quick, very like dirty draft of the book that was, a, <clears throat> pardon me, enough to get a contract with Paul Grave, that who the people who published the book eventually. And once I had like that hook in it, I sort of felt compelled to, you know, legally, I guess, um, in addition to morally, to actually finish the book at some point. So by the time I left Cambridge. I had, yeah, this draft of, like, something, like, a massive material. And at that point, I was going, I knew I was going back to the U.S. I was starting, going back to Columbia, starting up a Ph.D. And I'd been told by everyone that, you know, the first couple of years of graduate school, when you're doing coursework, it would be the most intense, like, rewarding, soul-crushing, like, everything intellectual experience that you could imagine. So I basically just put the job book into a corner for a couple of years. I came back to it once I passed my orals, once I defended my perspective. And, like, luckily, just because I managed to finagle some funding, that gave me time off of teaching, so I wasn't, like, pressed with many other obligations. I was able to take about six months to do, like, a floor-to-ceiling rewrite mm-hmm. of the book from, like, you know, the benefit. I, like, after having had the benefit of, like, years of graduate coursework, of sort of, like, learning what a historical monograph is really supposed to be, like, what a work of scholarship is supposed to be like. And politically or intellectually, I think... One of the reasons, one of the things that was the big, one of the biggest benefits for the book of this process is that I started writing this. So, like, I am like researching writing this book during financial crisis in 2008, <laughs> and which is it's a very particular framing. And I actually was coming at it in basically like a, a very, very sympathetic to adopt perspective. I'm just, like, you know, not a Stalinist. Like that is impossible in 2008 for, like, a good child of American suburbia. But, like, broadly speaking, like, you know, very sometimes to, like, some kind of, like, Marxist perspective. And over the course of my first couple years back at Columbia, I found myself, you know, drifting more toward, this might just sound, like, uselessly, like, theoretical, dark and heavy, but in some sort of, like, post-Marxist perspective that, Basically, I feel like I try and, like, retain a lot of desire to, like, go big, like, ask, like, important questions about, like, the course of history, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Some of the stuff that had been most compelling to me about Marxism in the first place. But 
without some of the like more doctrinaire elements of it. That's like a glib way of putting it, but not entirely wrong. Anyway, the point is that I ended up rewriting the book from, I wrote the first chapter of the book from the Alec perspective very close to Dobbs, and then I rewrote it with considerably more distance. And I think that that combination, basically, I had the energy to write the book because, or to do the research and initial writing the book because I kind of thought he was right. And then I rewrote it with, as I said, like more distance. I think that gives you, it's a much richer version than it would have been if I had just been able to like crank it out um, in two years or something when I was still in intensely Marxist mode. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's an excellent answer because it weaves the genesis of the book into your life. One of the points Mm -hmm. of this show, and you may know this because I know you listen, is that books don't fall out of the sky, Mm -hmm. that that actual people write them and that they are kind of as part of your life. I like to think of it as like you marry this subject for a while. (laughs) You know, when, it, when the thing goes away, you divorce and then you probably try it again, but it's very painful. You know, you don't want to let it go. And so, yeah, it's, it's, that was an excellent answer. And it's probably, uh, uh, it's either going to prompt people to want to go to graduate school or it's a cautionary tale. I don't know. Uh, I will leave it to oh, the listeners. Oh, it's great. I wouldn't trade it for anything. What are you talking about? It's wonderful. Okay. Every time, like every, every time I, I contemplate, like, what would have happened if I had, like, left school after undergrad, if I hadn't gone to Cambridge in the first place? What would have happened if I had, like, left school after Cambridge? I mean, I'm aware, I guess, uh-huh. theoretically, that intellectual development can happen outside of universities. Horrifying as that might be for me, such a child of them to contemplate. But it's just it's such a wonderful intellectual environment. Yeah, yep. this is just the random ad for graduate school in case anyone Okay, there we the go. Podcast. All right, there was an ad, already there. an ad for graduate school. There you have it. Sure. Um, so, you know, I guess I want to ask this question. Before we talk about – well, it's two questions. Sure. Before we talk about Dob, uh, and the first question is – and try to be – I was going to say try to be brief here, but but go on as sure. long as you want. What is political economy? We don't hear about that anymore. Nobody says I'm a political oh, wow. economist as far as I know. Yeah. They used to, and I'll tell you that they definitely used to, but nobody mm-hmm. says uh, – everybody's – you get a degree in economics, uh, and, and mm-hmm. that's it. And, and there's no such thing as political economy as far as I can tell. What is that? Yeah. Yeah, well, there's still few journals out there that will call themselves like journals of economy. But political economy originates as a sort of like circa 18th century description for like the easy version would be to say political economy is the 18th and 19th century version of what economics is today. But that's an oversimplification because political economy, I mean, it is people talking about stuff that we could class as economics if we wanted to, but it's part of a like larger discourse that is really oriented less around, say, like the creation of fancy mathematical models of the economy or markets or whatever, and these more thickly social historical descriptions of how economic exchange, economic activity, whatever works. And that, so that is the tradition um, through basically like 1900. The term falls into like disuse sometime around the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century in the English-speaking world. It's replaced with economics, which is, this is a conscious decision to try and distance the discipline from these more humanistic historical origins and place it more as, you know, a resolute social science. It's part of like the broader process of disciplinarization that you see happening at the end of the 20, at the end of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. But the term is like retained almost like polemically by, and I think this is sort of like lurking underneath your question, the people in the 20th century who are most likely to identify themselves as political economists or specialists in political economy are Marxists. Mm-hmm. That like they are self-consciously situating themselves in a position that even in their genealogy, you might say, begin with Adam Smith, go to Ricardo, culminate in Marx, then was abandoned by succeeding generations of perhaps like bourgeois politics 
and they're reviving it. Um, for me personally, uh, just in my own intellectual autobiography, one of my mo- one of the most important influences uh, early on was Eugene Dinovese. His first book, um, he's a Marxist, US, was a Marxist U.S. historian. Um, his first book is, among other things, like a self-described exercise in political economy. And it was a term that for Dobb had especially like powerful resonance. Mm-hmm. That was an excellent answer, too. Uh, it does become strongly associated with a political uh, a kind of cast of mind, I, I guess I, I would say. But but it was also a real thing. I mean, it was a it, it was it, w- it was a, it was a way of studying uh, the sort of production and distribution of things that uh, yeah. is largely lost. I was actually reading in another connection the biography of um, John Maynard Keynes. And I'll confess right. that I was reading it on Wikipedia. <laughs> and, and I, you know, I, I followed one of those trails on Wikipedia until I find out that I, I think, and maybe somebody can correct me, the first book that John Maynard Keynes, the most famous economist in the Western world, and everybody's darling, mm-hmm. the first book he ever wrote was a book on statistics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that goes to your point. Right there. Yeah. Yeah. He was. Although, by the way, this yeah. is just on the question of a political economy today. I'm holding in my hand right now a Begali's of this book called Capital in the 21st Century by Tom Piketty. Mm-hmm. It's like, this is, it's a book that like lots of people are talking about right now because it is like the best book on inequality that has come out basically like Simon Kuznets is an American economist. Yeah. It's great stuff on that in like the 1950s. But one of the most striking things about this book and about what Kelly's trying to do here, he's like, it's another attempt to like revive political economy, uh-huh. saying that this is a work of like statistically informed, like deeply empirical mm-hmm. economic research. But again, even though Piketty is not a Marxist, when you, t- when you use political economy, often it has its political force. Yeah. It's trying to indict the contemporary practice of economics mm-hmm. as basically like fancy mathematical theorizing that's become completely detached. Mm-hmm. Any like fundamentals of the social world, historical world, whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So my second question, uh, and mm-hmm. this is it's not an aggressive question, but I think it needs to be answered, and it is this: Why should we care about Maurice Dobb today? Yeah, that's a great question. It's something that uh, obviously I felt like very compelled to provide like a decent answer for um, in the book. But I think there are a couple reasons for it. The first one is. All right, so they, this is, I'll be like super narcissistic and biographical, uh, autobiographical. Like, I started writing this when I'm like in my early 20s, broadly situating myself as like part of the academic left. Uh, and so it's sort of like, obviously, there's like an appeal for like biography. I mean, it's, it's just like one of the strengths of the genre going back to Plutarch, right? Like, mm-hmm. you want to look at a life and see like what lessons you can get for yourself. And Dobb, an incredibly smart person, had incredibly smart dude, like, had lived for a very long time, 1900, he was born 1900, died in 1976, over like some of the most like, fascinating, in my opinion, like decades in the history of humanity. Someone who was able to produce like some brilliant academic work and make some like truly boneheaded political decisions. And some very smart and stupid political decisions. Who doesn't? Well. Like there should be a lesson there for, you know, it's like for me, it's like, oh, maybe I can like pick up some like pointers on what to do and what not to do for myself. But like less. Um, narcissistically, I think there's also the, my mantra when I was rewriting this was that there are no small historical subjects, only small historians. Mm-hmm. And like the conceit behind that would just be that you can do a, a tremendous amount of analytic work with even just an individual life if you know how to frame it appropriately. And like, as you know, in the introduction, I try and like step back and do like the view for 10,000 feet justification mm-hmm. for why dog's life is like particularly relevant. I mean, would you like me to go into that here? Yeah, please go ahead. Okay, great. So, and this is maybe like 
unredeemably pretentious, but I actually do think that there's a point to this. There's something here, which is that when we think about, like, big narratives that we have for understanding, like, you know, how we got here, the modern world, whatever, there are a couple that historically have, like, come to mind, like, very rapidly. The first is this idea that circa maybe 1700, 1800, there is, like, a fun... You, there's, well, you guess you can cause them together. is like, the two revolutions narrative. And this is the narrative, of course, that's, like, most prom- promoted by Eric Hausblatt, one of those students. We'll get back to that in a little bit, maybe. But the two revolutions narrative is basically this idea that modernity, democracy, our world today is a child of an industrial revolution and a French revolution, like, an economic revolution and a political revolution. The industrial revolution gives us capitalism, which, you know, may be born in Europe, sometime around, you can have debates over the genealogy, but born in Europe diffuses over the world, like remaking everything along its way. The political revolution basically casts modernity as like a clash of mighty opposing ideologies, liberalism versus conservatism, socialism, communism, etc. And the interplay of those two is like what it means to, is like that is, these are the fundamental forces like yep. making our world. That's the then story. Yeah, exactly. This is the one that we all know, and obviously, everyone is a story knows, and obviously, we also know that it can be critiqued from a variety of different perspectives, that the Industrial Revolution story, like, the Eurocentrism of both of them, the, like, empirical, like, inadequacy of an Industrial Revolution story that understates the complexity and significance of the preceding centuries and overstates the degree of growth, like, during the 19th century, like, there's the, the attacks you can level on that. Like, deep ass Tucker Party provincializing Europe. I mean, these are things that, like, all sorts of, like, ways you can go at, you can critique these narratives. Right. But anyway, like, they, we still know that there's, like, something big that happens. Like, being a person circa 2014 is very different than being a person 1800. There is, like, something big that happens there. And so I have those two narratives in mind. And there's a third, which you can think of, I mean, it's basically like a Foucauldian narrative, uh, but Steve Cocken calls it uh, like the rise of the welfare na- welfare state narrative. And what I find appealing about this is basically it says, instead of looking for sort of like a big epochal transformation, like industrial revolution or liberalism or whatever, it says, why don't we pay attention to the evolution of the practices of power, like political power in very like specific ways to see like what those transformations can be. Like what happens if we take certain objects, like say the population in the 19th century and examine the changing discourses and set of practices that emerge around them. And for me, this is something that I really had in my mind when I was coming back and revising the book. It seems to me that there's an important transformation that historians of the 20th century in particular need to get their heads around, and they haven't really, which is basically like the reinvention of politics around the social sciences over the course of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's like what it means, like the tools that we have for governing, the goals that we have, the people who are in charge of like realizing those goals, using those tools, all that stuff is completely recast, like to a large degree around social sciences over the course of the 20th century. And that no social science is more important in this process than economics, Mm -hmm. right? So this is, maybe it seems like kind of, maybe this like tripartite division seems kind of rambling, but I think there's a point to it, which is that Dobbs, because of his sort of like unique life and circumstances happens to be a really fascinating, he happens to open up a really fascinating window into all three of these narratives. So you think about it, like he's one of the first people, Sites of the Dylan Capitalism, which is the book that if any historian remembers Dobbs, it's going to be for this. That is the first like big Marxist rise of capitalism story that you get in a single volume in the English speaking world. So he helped like write 
one of the most influential versions of the capitalist narrative. As a communist, like from basically the he joins the party two years after its founding in the UK, 1922, and he's a member of it until his death in 76. He's a fascinating window on the ideology story of the 20th century. And because of his position as an economist, someone who was a student of Keynes, mentor to a Marxist then, tons of other people along the way, has also sort of this privileged access to a story about the transformation of political power in the 20th century that I think is both crucial and understudied. Mm-hmm. But that would be the short, I guess not that short, but that would be one of my, there's, the, of the two notifications I have, sort of like the personal, hey, you know, like maybe we as academic types can learn something from this other academic type. There's the personal justification and then the more analytic one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He was there at the creation. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's kind of what I And, put, then, yeah. but, and then things were, <laughs> thank you for summarizing that yeah, much more exactly yeah. than that. That's okay. Well, that's very good. Yeah, no, that's what I got out of the introduction. He was there at the creation. And he really was because he was at Cambridge for so long. I mean, one challenging thing yeah. about writing his biography is he, he, he was always there. I mean, he, he went mm-hmm. there in what, like 19, uh, I want to say 1920, and he didn't leave until 76 yeah. when he died. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, they had to take him out, they had to take him out in, a, in a coffin. Right. I mean, you know, like usually people go someplace and things happen to, you know, that kind of thing. But it's like, you know, this, wow. You know, I had moved more times but by the time I was like 17 than he moved in his whole life. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, let's talk a little bit about him as a, as a person. Uh, he was um, mm-hmm. born to great privilege and he went to a fancy pub- public school uh, in the Medium British. Medium privilege. Like, well, okay, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say that he's really spent his life bouncing around sort of like the lower edges of Britain's upper class. Like he went to a prep school, but it wasn't like the fanciest of prep schools. His dad, what he's saying is his dad was sort of like, um, the Marxist vernacular for that would be like petty bourgeois. Uh-huh. So he's not, it's not like a total, like the better contrast would be someone like Paul Sweezy, who like he'll have big debates over capitalism with in the 1940s. Sweezy's dad was like vice president of Citibank or something, yeah. like mm-hmm. went to like Exeter, then Harvard. That's like the fanciest of the fancy. Dobb is just a rung below that, mm-hmm. which if you're in, you know, ferociously class conscious Britain um, at this period, then like you're aware of that as mm-hmm. a kid and yeah. for the rest of your life. Right. Right, but he goes to this. He goes to this. Uh, we would call this prep school, and then he goes and, yeah. and he goes to Cambridge, which was a completely normal thing to do. Uh, and, <laughs> and then he does something unusual, right? He studies economics. I mean, mm-hmm. economics was not something that most people studied, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it was new. Mm-hmm. So go ahead, talk a yeah, little bit so about like that. Yeah, so like the it is like a very recent creation, although just it's, so it's weird to study economics like circa 1900 or 1920. But if you're at Cambridge, it's less weird than if you are pretty much anywhere else. Like Cambridge. At that period, you have sort of Marshall is still around, even though he's like older. But you have Pigot, you have Keynes, you have really the most intensive collection of CFM figures pretty much like anywhere in the country, like anywhere in the country or in the world. It's sort of like they are like the cutting edge of disorganization at this point. So if he was going to land anywhere for the study, Cambridge would have been, was the perfect place for it. Mm-hmm. And there's probably the doubt actually that he would have been an economist if he'd ended up at Oxford or right. somewhere else. Right. So an important question that I think people want to know is, did he bring communism to Cambridge or did Cambridge make him a communist? Actually, he, so he, when he's at Cambridge, is a member of, it's more like a testimony to the fluidity of the left at that moment, at least at that moment, if not others um, in Britain. He, so this is 1919, 1922, like that's around the time mm-hmm. when he's at Cambridge. And he's part of a socialist group. He's also part of like labor clubs, um, sort of like part, 
for the Labor Party, um, and sort of like floating around just different aspects of like the left left of British public opinion. He doesn't actually become a communist though until he does his uh, he's, until he's in London. He's at the LSE after he's graduated from Cambridge, doing his PhD, and like that's when he joins the party. And then he is after he gets his PhD at the LSE, he comes back to Cambridge. And he brings communism with him at that point. Although, yeah, he is the first in Britain, at least the first um, academic hired by like a major university who also happens to be a communist. So to that sense, he brings communism with him, although it doesn't really get started in a major way, communism that is in Cambridge, until the 1930s. And that is for reasons that have nothing to do with Bob mm-hmm. and everything to do with the Great Depression. Right. And you tell a funny little story about his the beginning of his career at Cambridge. I don't know if it's the beginning or when he goes to Trinity. I can't remember which. Mm. You know the story okay, I'm talking so about? Is, yeah, yeah I, I'm guessing that it would be the one that um, some... So, Dobb is at Cambridge around 1920. This is at the same time that the university is experiencing an influx of student veterans, people, undergraduates, who had put off um, enrolling at Cambridge so that they could go into the war. Everyone... Like, he, Dobb is in that, like, first wave of students, like, we entering Cambridge. Um, which means that you have a lot of like very patriotic, very hardy young men who do not take kindly to even having like a self-identified like socialist um, in their in their company, and it's especially it becomes especially cruel when you like remember that Dob like from like sort of testifying to his like bourgeois upbringing was always like a very natty dresser. Uh, and there was like some line that uh, socialist and Cambridge had, which was that if they ever needed to, they could like use Dob's trousers to print their um <laughs> to put their manifestos they were like so tightly pressed mm-hmm. uh he would also by the way um like make every all the socialists they always want to have meetings in Dobbs room because he had the best snacks like he would make sure <laughs> to get them tea and eclairs all that stuff. and actually he taught um one of his fellow socialists like jd pernell who would go on to be sort of a very famous scientist he um he taught him how to tie a bow tie mm-hmm. this is sort of like Dobbs role in the cambridge undergraduate socialist ecology but anyway Dobbs and eddie dresser was like from time to time like thrown into the river camp by groups of student veterans like fully dressed like tossed in the water just to make a point i don't know that socialism was bad so it will make you really really wet mm-hmm. but yeah, that was that was part of what it meant to be a socialist in cambridge in 1920 mm-hmm. but then i was thinking about the anecdote when he's uh, when he's i guess hired is the right word i don't really know he got a lectureship or i, I don't remember the exact name oh wow yeah this is what I used to open the book. Sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. So this is, um, I mean, this is, a, I think it's a really fascinating story for a variety of reasons. It's revealing as um, well. So, yeah. 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 So Dobb is 1925. He's coming back to Cambridge and he's being offered this, um, sort of extra like bonus position as a director of studies at Trinity, which is one of the oldest, fanciest, richest, et cetera, colleges at Cambridge. And he's being offered it by Dennis Robertson, who is one of Cambridge's eminent economists and, uh, is, had been a, was a mentor to Dobbs throughout his life. Robertson, like much more on the conservative side, but it's like actually like as in yet not just on the conservative side. Like he was a conservative, but uh, and sort of a very old school like uh, type of economist. He was a classicist. Actually, he had trained as an undergrad and sort of like the image, fitting image of the British aristocrat. But he had like taken the shine to Dobbs because Dobbs was brilliant and smart. And he says like offers one of his favorite students like this job, which is just like nice little bonus. And Dobb accepts right away, and then he immediately goes into agonizing mode because this is, like, 1925. He knows that he hasn't told Robertson, really, like, pretty much anyone in Cambridge yet, that he has joined the party, that he is a communist. And he agonizes, 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 eventually writes a letter to Robertson giving what he says are the full facts, that he had joined the party, 
that like this was something that was important to him, that he wasn't going to give it up, and that he would understand if, given his party membership, that um, the offer to teach attorney was, was would be withdrawn. And Dennis Robertson like writes back like right away. He says, "Dob, don't worry. As long as you give us two weeks' notice before blowing up Trinity Chapel, we'll be fine." <laughs> and the <laughs> issue is uh, taken care of after that. And like the thing that I think is really which so I think this I, I use this anecdote to open up the book because I, for a couple of reasons, probably just because it's like a funny joke. Also, it's like it testifies to like the weirdness capture some of the weirdness of God's relationship. But also um, a nice like a weird footnote to the story is that, so I don't know if, like, Robertson would have used this term to describe himself, but basically, like, Dennis Robertson was gay, that mm-hmm. he was a man who, like, had sex with men. And there's part of this, I just like this idea of opening the story as, like, two fussy white dudes, Cambridge academics, right? That is one version, um, talking to each other. And then that is sort of, like, what we'd expect to see from, like, a lot of stories about, uh, stereotypes about, like, this moment. And this, this moment in intellectual history, like this place in intellectual history, but it's also, you know, like the communist and the gay dude, like talking to each other as well. Like the, the, the I, hopefully that like suggests that there is like a more interesting world here than you would have. It's not just, you know, boring dead white men, like yelling at each other mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. forgotten economic policies. Yeah. It's very clubby. That's what, that's sort of what struck me. Oh yeah. It's very clubby. I mean, that's why, yeah, yeah. That's why Dobbs can be a communist, like can be invited back is that Dobbs communism is an eccentricity not that different from Robertson's homosexuality yeah. that like once, and that is, you know, the pro- provincialism, parochialism of Cambridge, it can cut both ways, right? It can like exclude lots and lots and lots of stuff. I think it's almost undeniable that like intellectually it was vital for Dobb that he got out of Cambridge for a while, went to the LSE because he was exposed to like a much broader range of influences, German economics, American economics, continental economics more broadly. And like that was essential for his development. But like, the upside of Cambridge provincialism was once you were in the club, you were allowed to go pretty much wherever you wanted to mm-hmm. because everyone assumed that you were smart and they trusted you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting to me, that world. I think that world is gone, but maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> so I'm not quite sure where to go next, but could you talk to us a little bit uh, about uh, Dobbs's life in the interwar years? I know that he works with Keynes and Straffa and these mm-hmm. other people that we know. And so he'd take us up to, I guess, the beginning of World War II. Great. So he arrives back at Cambridge, and he's, like, for, in circa 1925, he's, like, ferociously productive in his first couple of years. He has a book, and he turns his dissertation, which is sort of partly history of capitalism, partly this discussion of economic theory using the entrepreneur, like, focusing on the entrepreneur and the question of monopoly, trying to use that to mount some sort of, like, fundamental challenge to uh, bourgeois economic theory, as he would call it. That's his first book sort of a mixture of history and theory. His second book is the first, I mean, this would be of interest to you, it's like one of the first major English language accounts of like recent, like post-revolution Soviet uh, history with a special focus on like the Soviet political economy. That comes out in like 1928, 1927. And then, and he sort of like this like late 20s period is in some ways kind of like a golden age for Dobb, like intellectually at least. Like he has like sort of the security of being in Cambridge and he has like the political energy from being a communist, but there's still like a lot of flexibility with like what he's able to do that change from, from like both sides, like Cambridge's school with what he wants to do. Um, generally speaking, he has to protect, he has the support of patrons like James Robertson, which gives him a lot of leeway. And the party is in like one of its more open moments that changes at the start of the 1930s when there's a drive within the communist party of Great Britain, CPGB, to like close, basically this is the period of class against class. 
is the label um, that is used to discuss it, to periodize it. This is when the lines of permissible dissent like shrink radically, and there's actually a kind of coordinated effort to discipline Dobbs, if not drive him out of the party altogether by some of the more, like, you can call them, this isn't quite right, but generally, like, anti-intellectual mm-hmm. elements of the party, which, like, leads to one of the most traumatic uh, political experiences of Dobbs' life. So, like, based on the story is that he writes, he just tosses off this little pamphlet on, like, Marxism. It's called Marxism Today, and this is the early 1930s. He's trying to write for mainstream audiences a guide to Marxism, because this is a moment when British, like, the British general public is becoming more interested in Marxism than it has ever been. And he wants to do his part to try and, like, bring some new recruits to the cause. And the Daily Worker, basically the official organs of the Times Party of Great Britain, like, freak out over the issuing of this publication. They use it as an opportunity to denounce him. He's actually hauled before, there, there's, like, negative denunciatory reviews in the Worker, um, other party journals. He's hauled before the Cambridge, like, chapter of his party, which is this enormously important institution in his life, and, like, denounced to his face, basically, as a traitor to the cause. And Dodd, like, he gets up, he defends himself at this extraordinarily painful um, repudiation from his, like, fellow party members. Like, he does that by all accounts, like, what we have. Um, he does, like, a fine job of that. But he's, like, shaking on the inside, you know. And as mm-hmm. soon as he gets out of, as soon as he finishes defending himself, he, like, stumbles out of the room, goes right to the bathroom, and just bumps in the toilet because he's, like, so nervous and so upset about that. And he stays within the party. He chooses to stay. He doesn't, you can spin this either as he doesn't let himself be intimidated out of abandoning a cause that he believes in, or he refuses to take the warning signs that this is not, in fact, a great way for him to, like, invest his emotional, political energy. But he stays in the party, like, redoubles his commitments throughout the 1930s, which results in him, like, you know, he just throws himself into activism with the somewhat, for him, he would, like, later acknowledge this, like, painful consequence that while he is busy, you know, contributing to anti-fascist, like whatever, communist political activism, he is not engaging with debates among his colleagues, um, most called John Maynard Keynes, about what will become the Keynesian revolution. Like the general theory of economics, the most important, like, text in the history of economic thought since the Wealth of Nations, like, Dobbs has no idea what to do with that when it comes out, because he's spending all of his time, like, working for the party, basically. And there, they, there's some, when he has academic work, it's like, he's still contributing some major, uh, some major contributions along those lines, but he just doesn't have the time to take Kane seriously. And as a consequence, he misses out on, like, the most important event in his, <laughs> kind of thought, like, in this period, which is happening just a few blocks from where he's living. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So how, how does he, how does his thought develop during this period? Or is he so involved in activism that he doesn't publish? Well, no, no. So he has, um, and this is the thing, he actually produces both economy and capitalism, which is right. one of his, like, most significant works. So, like, if people know, like, any of that stuff, it'll be either, like, this yeah. book from the 1930s on economic theory or studies in the development of capitalism. And there's a lot in the political economy, the theory book, that is like really great and really memorable, really compelling. And sort of Dobbs at his best, his discussion of imperialism, which he went to fascism, is oh, and this is something I should mention earlier, actually, like he's a great writer. This is he was a joy to research and a joy to read. Like very charming, very everyday, compelling dude. Um, but just a gift for lucid prose. Mm-hmm. He's capable of like churning this stuff out like in massive quantities, yeah. like very, very quickly. And the stuffing was just like 
I, I'm, I'm biased in this, obviously, but I do think he's like one of the best, like, as just as a pro stylist, like one of the best economists that I've ever come across, like in his generation, in the 20th century more generally. Mm-hmm. So this is, this like a lot of ways, it's just like a joy to um, research and to write. But, so he has this like work of economic theory, like slash economic history, that is important for all sorts of reasons. But he would, even he would like would later admit that by missing out on what was going on with Keynes, he's left out like what should have been like the pivot of the story. Because this is a moment when um, Ben Johnson, who's at Oxford, has done some amazing stuff. Uh, he has uh, his dissertation book is on um, inequality and inequality, sort of the rhetoric around that on the British left. And his line on this, which I think is right, is that the British left in the 1930s is stuck in like kind of in a civil war between advocates of Keynes and advocates of sort of like a broadly like Marxian approach to political economy. And there was no person better positioned to like negotiate some sort of marriage between them if such a thing was possible than Dobb was. And he's too busy organizing, you know, like uh, screen, like anti anti fascist propaganda sessions to really engage with that. So yeah, there are a lot of important theoretical, some, some fascinating theoretical contributions, just some great political polemics in his economic theory book, but it misses out on like the big story of the period. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, uh, to, to ask another obvious question, I guess. He, he he apparently knew a lot about the Soviet Union. He wrote a book about it. Uh, mm-hmm. How did he assimilate? I think that's a nice neutral word. <laughs> assimilate the, the news of Stalinism in the 1930s. Yeah, I mean, this is it's important to keep in mind here. I, and I hope this doesn't sound so too weasley. Is that Dobbs' combination of like denial and favoritism towards Stalin was far from unique and not limited mm-hmm. just the Congress sure, either. Sure. Like this is a moment when like the West are publishing, like, what's the book, like, Stalinism, A New Civilization, the first edition has the question oh, yeah. mark after the title, oh, yeah. and the second edition, they drop the question mark. And, uh, you know, this is for a good chunk of the British population. Like, you can see Stalin as kind of um, the line is like, a Russian Churchill, you know, that he's sort of, like, kindly benign Uncle Joe. And there's always enough room to, like, to um, dispute any accusation. So, like, that, the, like, famine in Ukraine, you could say that, like, this is a complicated scenario. There are all sorts of countervailing pressures going on. This is the moment when Walter Durante, right, is going to win the Pulitzer Prize yep. for decidedly, like, not, like, ex- like, exposing what is going on in the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And even when you have to admit that, like, okay, there are problems going on, they can be explained away by saying that, let's say, the Kulaks are posing, like, a real threat or internal dissonance among the communism is going to posing a, a real existential threat. Like, there's always some existential, existential threat to the Soviet Union mm-hmm. that can be used to justify, um, like, marginalizing, dismissing these concerns. And then, when that fails, you can still say, oh, uh, granted, the Soviet Union isn't perfect, but it is an imperfect realization of deeply admirable ideals, and let's talk about capitalism for a while. Mm-hmm. Like, that will always be the move. Like, let's talk about empire. Let's talk about what's going on in India. Let's talk about fascism, which you can argue is the logical, like, culmination of what's going on in capitalism. That sort of, like, ensemble of moves, like a mixture of, like, denial, some, like, aggressive, um, aggressively misleading contextualization, uh-huh. and shifting the conversation to the thing that you oppose. And keep in mind, this is, it's not that hard to say that capitalism is a failed system in the 1930s, yep. when the Soviet Union, like, economically is doing quite well compared to, like, what we see going on in the rest of the world. Yep. So if the choice is between, okay, yes, problematic, but, like, let's admire the ideals, and let's think about the scope of the success, like, what has been done in just this, like, short period of time in Stalin's Soviet Union compared to a West that seems to be collapsing on itself. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what allows Dobb and many, many others to get on board the bandwagon. And then 
to jump ahead a little bit, the story like during World War II will be okay, and then the Soviet Union like because of communism we win World War II, mm-hmm. right? That like without Stalin, without Stalinization, without industrialization, without collectivization, like Hitler wins, and the like the mere fact of victory in World War II is enough to validate the Soviet model for Dobbs and many others, like at least until 1956, which will be when the next crisis comes along. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. That was a good answer, actually, and I, I think you're exactly right, that it, w- it wasn't hard to deflect that kind of criticism. There were lots of ways to do it, and people as smart as Dobbs could do it. Um, and, yeah. and they, and they, and they course, could do it, and they could really do it, they, they could do it without being, the train too. yeah, I was going to say, they could do it without being uh, disingenuous. That yeah. They, yeah, I mean, they didn't have to they didn't have to say, no, this isn't happening. Uh, they, they could say a lot of other things and sort of uh, sort of, just basically not answer the question about what was happening and say other things yeah, that were true. Yeah, and actually, so the, and the obvious point, too, and just to address this, too, so like what you do during the Hitler-Stalin Pact, right? Like how do you account for this? Someone right. like Dobbs who spent like so much of his time in the 1930s actually against fascism, what do you do when you have this alliance? And this is when he breaks out like the hardcore realpolitik argument where he yeah. says that, and it is, it's really fascinating to see Chris Lies in this way, where he says, what matters is keeping the Soviet Union alive because the Soviet Union is the best hope that we have for advancement to cause world socialism. And if mm-hmm. humanity is to survive, we need world socialism. Mm-hmm. So there are sacrifices that have to be made. I recognize that. But basically, like, making the Soviet Union into, like, the earthly manifestation of the socialist principle allows anything that justifies the existence of the Soviet Union to become good socialist policy. Right. And not out of naivete, but out of what you could present as a very hard-nosed kind of calculation right. about the best interest of socialist politics. Right. Now, there are all sorts of reasons why, especially from 2014, you could, like, slap your forehead and say, like, no, this is an awful decision. Like, what are you doing? But sort of I was impressed with... And this, and this is just like my naive assumption had been, you know, that these are people who are just like, they're stupid. They don't understand what's going on. At the very least, they're like woefully naive. But if anything, this is almost like cynical appraisal uh, justification of being in the Soviet Union, uh, or sort of maintaining your support for the Soviet Union in 1939, 1940. It was surprising to me. Right. But in 1939, particularly, it wasn't the, the communists that looked naive. It was everybody else. Because the communists yeah. had been saying from the very beginning that, that yeah. fascism and Hitler was a disaster and it was going to be the end of them all. I mean, they were the only people yeah, who were Yeah, and, right. and this is when, and when you have people saying, like, how, as a communist, can you support um, Hitler? How can you support the alliance with Hitler? Then Bob could throw, like, Chamberlain back in their face and yeah. say that, like, well, not too long ago, you guys seem to be pretty happy making right. an alliance with him, or at least, right. you know, putting, putting this conflict off into the distance. Like, what you want, what you, what you wanted, you could say to his opponent, you wanted the Western world and, and Hitler against the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Now it's the Soviet Union and Hitler against, like, France or whatever. Right. And it's problematic when it could be Britain, uh, for uh, obvious reasons. But the sort of claims to moralism in his, in his ears uh, ring hollow because mm-hmm. of what, was, what had been going on in Munich. Right. So we talked a little bit about what happens during World War II. Let's move forward. You say the next big moment is yeah. 1956. Um, yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's, it's a traumatic moment for Dobbs. So that's a moment when you have 1956 is the year of Khrushchev's like, so-called secret speech, where he reveals like, some of the atrocities committed by Stalin. He's like open about that. And this is a speech that um, is, not, is not supposed it is, it is supposed to be secret. Quickly disseminates like, across the Western world, thanks to the help of the CIA and the New York Times. And, like, that is one traumatic shell shock moment. Then there's, like, the put, putting down of uh, revolution in Hungary, which is another, like, often cited uh, moment in, like, the disillusionment of communists that happens over this period. Actually, Hobsbawm, in his memoir, the book that got me started thinking about this project to begin with, says, recall 1956. I think his line is, like, that was a year when Britain's communists 
lived on the edge of a collective nervous breakdown. Mm-hmm. Um, something that's like often left out of the story, though, there actually was like uprising in Poland, not too dissimilar to what was going on in Hungary. And Dob was there. He was in Poland when this was going down. And uh, it was what he would later describe. He says, like, it was the first time that I realized that contradictions were possible in a socialist society. Like seeing these protests, seeing these workers rebellion, that it's actually in Poznan, the city where he's um, staying, and uh, we'll see some of the most um, violent protests. He, like, the protests like start at factories. It's, it's like the Joseph Stalin industrial plant or something like that is where they begin. And they're put down quickly. But Dobb, who had been part of this like visiting entourage of English economists in the country at the time, he goes out and gathers the sort of like bullet cartridges and shattered glass from when those protests were being put down, and he keeps them for the rest of his career. Sort of like he calls them his part-time mementos, mm-hmm. the reminders of this sort of like shocking experience for him. Mm-hmm. And this is a moment, 1956-57, when like large numbers of Marxists, like not just in England, but around the world, will leave the party. And when you think about like the British Marxist historians, like a lot of the big names that come to mind, like someone like E.P. Thompson or Christopher Hill, this is the moment when like they get off the train. They say like, no, this is not for us anymore. Hobsbawm and Dobb, though, are two of the biggest figures who stay. And the reason that Dobb gives for staying, I think, is really fascinating. He says that basically he recognizes, like he is very, very clear that the Communist Party in Great Britain in particular, communism, Soviet Union in general, again, these are flawed vehicles for an ambitious program. But he says that a united, uh, like a divided left, some, something where the Communist Party is like fractured in lots of pieces or it's just scattered to the wind, a divided left is a useless left. It's an instant left that won't get anything done. So like what we have to do is not like send the best people out, but rather like reform the party from within to like make sure that if there's any chance of communists ever getting power, of the like, radical left getting power, it'll be by all of us gathering together and making some sort of change happen. And again, that's, it's a story that you can see like all the obvious problems with this. There's someone, the communists have, I don't think, ever gotten like, you know, they're like a couple, they're like thousands of members at this point. They're like, a, they're never going to be a presence in Britain the way that they are in France or in Italy. The idea of a communist electoral victory is just like absolutely absurd. But you see here also an anticipation, I think, maybe, maybe, of sort of, of what is not wrong about critiques of, like, a divided left that is incapable of uniting around, like, things as, like, single, like, goals, for, like, whatever, it's some sort of aspiration. And, um, yeah, it, it, it's just a really striking, uh, it's a really striking distillation of, like a problem that leftists will face, like generally, this desire for um, freedom, autonomy, like individual expression and diversity, along with like more hard-nosed attempts to like make political change like actually happen. And the problem is that Dobbs is just being like irredeemably romantic about the possibility of the Communist Party being a vehicle for change. But the paradox that he's isolating here is one that is more generally portable. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's also important to contextualize it in the Western European. Uh, sense, and that is that in 1956, uh, a lot of people did flee the party. But there were, as you as you point out, there were big communist parties in France and Italy. It, it wasn't yeah. like communism was a dead letter, <laughs> hardly yeah. anything but on the continent. Uh, you know, I mean, they, yeah, so they were, yeah, they were not doing badly electorally. Yes, they're, they're, I mean they're doing miserably in Britain, but they've always been doing miserably yeah. in Britain. And 
so the question is just like whether, yeah, it, it, this would be a debate that would be much more comprehensible. Right? It would be much easier to have a, something like a sympathetic perspective to Dobbs if you were in France or if you were in Italy. Um, being in England, it seems like a little bit more detached from what was going on. It seems like there was room yeah. for autonomy that he wasn't pursuing. And that you do have a black or new left that will be coming out of this, that will like face its own problems, but that he chooses to stay within the party, I think also ultimately has, so there's a bit of a biographical explanation for this as well. Right. The people who are leaving, like Hill and Thompson, like a lot of them are like people who signed up with the party in the 1930s. For them, this is like a moment of like capitalist crisis. Um, like that is what the party meant for them. Where for Dobb, you know, he is someone who, he doesn't join the Communist Party officially until the 1920s, but he, Lenin is his political icon from when he's like 17 onward. When he's actually, when he's 17, he writes this sort of like, was that is sort of his book uh, novel as uh, part of frightening precocity and um, how productive he was. He writes this novel called The Shadow of the Vatican, which is sort of like um, Tom Clancy meets <laughs> Lenin, like through the like lens of this like seventeen year old boy. And, it's sort of, and they, cause there's also like a Jesuit conspiracy involved in, in some way. It's this sort of like ridiculous like pot boiling like spy thriller novel. But the hero of the book is this like barely, like, veiled, like, Lenin stand-in. Like, Lenin is a person who's really, like, key to Dobbs' awakening, the hero <laughs> he will be coming back to. Like, and Dobbs is someone who, I feel like, he does, he can repudiate Stalin, and we'll do that later, but he can never repudiate, like, Lenin. And that sort of, like, early identification with the party, in a way, it's kind of, like, analogous to Hobbes, too, who had, like, a very different moment. Like, for him, being communist meant being in Berlin, being in Germany, in, like, the early 1930s, like, part of this, like, resistance to the Nazis. For Dobbs, too, it's, like, a very, it's a different kind of political association, which is, is, like, seeing, like, 1917, 1918, 1919, which is, as, like, Jeff Ely's pointed out, this is, like, the first, the only, like, real moment of, like, like, revolutionary, like, left absurgence across Europe that you'll see other than, like, 1848 um, in European history. And that kind of identification is, like, deeply personal moment. And also, like, a singular one because like there's not he's not part of like the 1930s where there's like this generational turn that was fairly isolated and embracing communism early on it makes it much harder for him for just like obvious biographical reasons to abandon the party later as well yeah um you mentioned the new left and i wanted to talk about them because when i was an undergraduate it was after the new left but they were people i read with great admiration because they seemed to me uh to be um, very sophisticated. I'll just say that. And, 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 and I guess I kind of aligned my politics with them when I was 19 years old and, you know, read my first book, basically. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, well, this book explains everything. You will, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, really, I didn't, you know, I was from Kansas and I just hadn't, you know, I hadn't read a lot of books. And I, so I read these books. And um, so can you talk to us a little bit about what Dobb thought of the the new left and what the new left was? Because this sort of eats up, in, in a certain sense, the rest of his life. So go ahead. Yeah, well, there are a couple of different new lefts that we're talking about here, too. So it's important to distinguish. Like, there is, like, the British new left of the uh, late 50s, early 60s. So someone like E.B. Thompson, again, like, Christopher Hill, Stuart Hall, be associated with this as well. Um, like, those figures, like, that is one group. And then there's sort of, like, the broader international new left of the 1960s, which... And then, sort of, to complicate matters even further, there's, like, the new left of the new left review. You know, like, right, Terry Anderson, Robin Blackburn, that right. sort of, like, the right. Marxist project. Right. And, like, actually, generally, Dobbs had, like, a favorable view of pretty much all of them. This is, like, one of the things that, I mean, is appealing about him as a subject is that even though he had strongly held personal convictions, he was able to read widely. Uh, so, um, Dobbs, um, his last student, uh, Keith Tribe, who went on to produce, like, some just absolutely, like, amazing um, yeah, works of, yeah, yeah, yeah uh, economic history of economic thought, economic history. Um, 
Dobb was the only person who was willing to supervise. Dobb became tribe supervisor because no one else was willing to supervise someone who was basically an Alzheimerian Marxist, interested in like Foucault. It was sort of like all this like outre theory. Like Dobb, as a seventy year like seventy something professor, is the only person willing to like take on that kind of a student. And the, at, at Cambridge. So mm-hmm. I, I think that said something really valuable about him. Also, I mean, why is Marcus Sen? Why does he um, look back on Dob with such fondness? Why does he call Dob um, the closest thing that he ever had to a guru? That, that's uh, Sen's language. It's because when uh, Sen is a graduate student in economics doing his, pursuing his PhD at Cambridge in the 50s, Dob is the only person who's willing to talk about Kenneth Arrow, rational choice theory, the stuff that Dob, that uh, Ben is really excited about, will make a career developing. Mm-hmm. Um, he, Dob is the only person in Cambridge willing to have those kinds of conversations with him. Mm-hmm. I think you can make this, you can make an argument that sort of the total marginalization that he faced as a Marxist maybe encouraged a more flexible disposition toward like theory or whatever that's ruled out of bounds um, generally. So Dob is someone anyway who politically he can look with like some favor, even though he wishes that people like Kill and Thompson had stayed in the party, he can still like approve of their scholarship. He can he can be excited when people like Genovese or Habermas, as they will, like cite approvingly like Dobbs' work. And he can say that there had never been a theoretical journal of more interest and excitement than in my review, which is what he will say in the nineteen seventies. I think that's kind of so, right. I mean I, I when I read it as an undergraduate, I thought it was really amazing. I just thought it was yeah, amazing. Yeah, and, and I mean, the, the project that they're going, the, the project that Neil's Review is undertaking in this period is basically like importing continental theory, like translating that for uh, English and to a lesser extent, like American audience. And Dob will say, like, right on, this is great. I have some caveats about the project. There are things I'm worried about. Um, maybe I don't buy, like, students as revolutionary, like, agents of change quite as much as they get the sense that you guys do. But he's, like, 100% behind it. And it's someone, like, he'll be excited he'll be like engaged with like Gromsky like those kinds of attempts to produce like more richer complicated subtle nuance like whatever Marxism he's never opposed to that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. even if in his own work he's not developing it as aggressively because he's more concerned Mm -hmm. with questions of political economy and and this is a story too right and you see this um Perry Anderson's um one reason why it's interesting to, to study Dobbs like part of the story of academic Marxism in the 20th century as again Perry Anderson points out um in his writings on Western Marxism is the relative like weakening of political economy as a central scholarly interest and engagement with like Western Marxism, the questions of, oh, I mean, you could say like ontology, aesthetics, philosophy, social theory, more broadly, like whatever. Dobb is someone who, like he can be supportive and engaged with what's going on in that front, but trying to contribute like original, like economic uh, contributions to Marxist theory, which from, you know, from 2008, when I started writing this to 2014, when it's out today, is something that, you know, it seems like there's a moment, our particular moment, one where people are searching for some sort of rebounding political economy, Marxist or otherwise, which mm-hmm. makes uh, sort of interesting to come back to for particular presentist reasons, in addition to the biographical and historiographical um, arguments that I outlined, uh, that I sketched uh, at the start of our conversation. Mm-hmm. And what about his relationship with um, Hobsbawm, uh, Hobsbawm, who becomes famous? Yeah. And, and I want to, I, <laughs> I was, I, I guess I'm a little bit hesitant to call Hobsbawm famous, but that's the world I live in. And he is famous in no, my he, world. No, but he's famous in the UK, too, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, he's someone, I'm pretty sure his obituary was, uh, his death was, like, on the front page of The Guardian. Or yeah, like maybe. Like, so he I, is, like, yeah, yeah, so, he's so, a celebrity figure in the UK in a way that he's not. I and mean, he's also, I mean, if people know the name of a historian, there is a good, and um, even in the United States, there is a good chance that's going to be Hobsbawm. I mean, I was in Argentina a couple months ago. And the Ages series, the Age of Revolution, Age of Extremes, Age of Capital, Age of Empire, like those were all like prominently displayed 
and uh, was, like Buenos Aires bookstore, like mm-hmm. and within like 10 minutes, within like 10 seconds mm-hmm. entering, I see like the air cop on display. So yeah, he has a worldwide reach um, that I mean, the rest of us can only envy. Uh, well, so how does so Doc see this? I mean, is, you know, I mean, how does he, how does he relate to this? Yeah, he, I mean, he, from what I can tell, uh, like they, like very, very affectionate. Like uh, Hobbs will say that he got, like that he thinks that um, Dobb is, Actually, Dobbs' last thing that he writes is a chapter for a volume on Marxism that Hasbro had been editing. And Dobbs, so listen, this is Dobbs in his 70s when he's doing this. Like, literally, he'll um, die a month or something after he finishes the article off to Hasbro. And Hasbro, in soliciting the chapter from him, will say that, you know, I got still, like, most of what I know about Marxist political economy from you. Mm-hmm. And that, um, like, you're still, like, the best person on the subject. And Dobb will always like look with approval on what Hobbsbaum is doing. I think the distinction, though, is that because Hobbsbaum went off in his like more historically oriented direction, whereas Dobb stayed sort of straddling history and economic theory, that um, there wasn't sort of like a direct, as direct like sort of a scholarly line of influence. Actually, someone like E.P. Thompson will say will be um, more ready to acknowledge Dobb's like direct intellectual influence. He'll say that I didn't need to do sort of big structural economics in the making of the, making of the English working class because Marx and Dobbs had done that for me already. Mm-hmm. That his book is sort of like written around the sketch that Marx is in capital and that Dobbs systematizes and cites the development of capitalism. But mm-hmm. for Hassan, actually, one of the important moments, um, so beyond just ending up at Cambridge, he says that on Marxism today, that little pamphlet that got, that got Dobbs in such trouble with the party in the early 1930s, that was one of the key texts in Hassan's own political awakening. And he said, not knowing sort of the personal history, like all the trouble that that volume had gone, or that pamphlet had gone up into, he'll say, I think in an introduction to Dobbs' trip, like he wonders, like, just how many cafes um, in England, like, sort of ferocious, like, excited young communists were ferociously debating um, the issues generated by that little pamphlet, like how many people that sort of, like, their gateway drug to Marxism as it was like for him in some capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, the, and the last question I want to ask about Dobb, and then we'll, uh, uh, we'll ask about what you're going you're doing now. Uh, how is he remembered today on the British right or left or center or wherever? Is he remembered? I, I think he's generally forgotten, but he still had a sort of surprising and paradoxical legacy, which is that, so Dobb, so Dobb saying like he's remembered, like they're actually, actually I think probably um, in Latin American countries, I've had like the most interest of people who like where Dobb is still like a major presence. Uh, like when I was in Argentina, a friend of mine were telling me that they say like Hobbsbaum, Thompson, then Dobb. Like mm. somehow like Dobb has like has a little bit mm. more traction there than in the English speaking world. But I'd say that via some people, like especially like Robert Brenner, who's an econ- economic historian at UCLA and who writes regularly for the New Left Review, a sort of like, and people like Elmi Woods as well, like Dobbs' analytics, sort of the approach to capitalism that he developed in places of development capitalism. Oh, wow, wow that was a harsh sentence. Um, but That's anyway, right. Dobbs' approach, Dobbs' approach to the study of capitalism uh, has basically become like the the general disposition to it has become essential to a lot of like Marxist left wing attempts to like understand like what is going on with capitalism. Mm-hmm. And as you know from reading the book, like I have a variety of problems with, like, that approach, but it is strikingly sent to which I think you can still see, like, very strong, and sometimes Brenner will specifically acknowledge, like, God's influence. Actually, and according to a syllabus for one of his classes that I found online, a class from, like, maybe 2012 or something like that, mm-hmm. Brenner has, like, some uh, history of capitalism course, and, like, the first book that they read is Dobbs, 
mm-hmm. that development capitalism. They yeah. sort of like help frame what comes after. Uh, and you see that in Brenner's own work as well. Mm-hmm. So this approach to capitalism has become part of like the common sense of like what it means to talk about capitalism for a good chunk of the intellectual left. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, thank you very much for all that. We've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, it's a it's a really great book. I found it very interesting, and talking to you was even more interesting. And I, I probably could go on for another hour about this, but we can't do that. So, uh, to conclude the interview, maybe you could just say a few words about what you're working on now. Great. Yeah. Well, the Dobbs thing was always like I came to Cambridge and I was doing like European British history because I was in Britain slash Europe, but I had always intended to come back and do uh, U.S. history. That was my first passion. And I'm picking up on one of the sort of themes I trace through the Dobb book, which is this question about sort of like practices of politics, the rise of economists, and in particular, the emergence of like the economy as something that people seem to have like all sorts of really strong opinions about. And that for some reason is like the state's responsibility to be like guardian, promoter, defender, whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's something you can see developing. But the economy is not something that Dobb or pretty much anyone is talking about um, in the 1920s in the English speaking world. And it's something that will become really, really important, essential, and unavoidable by the 1950s. So my dissertation is like trying to explain like how this happens in the US, mm. in the United States, basically. So the emergence of the economy as for the first time like the central object of like domestic local governance uh, between World War One and the Great Society. I mean, it's a fascinating topic. I. I... I do often wonder why we're so interested in these things. My friends who are uh, uh, stockbrokers and things like this, fund managers, and you know, you meet these kinds of people, uh, all tell me that I just should not pay any attention to this stuff. <laughs> That's what they say. They say it's just like it'll just make you it'll just make you uh, anxious and worried. So just don't even look at it. So, um, so anyway, today we've been talking to Tim Shank about his book, uh, Maurice Dobb, Political Economist. And the first thing I want to do is thank Tim for being on the show. Thank you, Tim. Thank you so much for having me. It was a blast. Absolutely. And the second thing I want to do is say that I'm Marshall Poe, and I'm the host of New Books in History. I'm also the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network. And I want to thank everybody for listening today. I hope you have a great week.